0: I'm spending today's morning show in conversation with author Scott Ryan, who has written a whole series of really interesting books about television and about particular programs on television where there are interesting stories from behind the scenes. So books uh, like The Last Days of Letterman or 30-something at 30 in Oral History or uh, The Women of Amy Sherman Paladino which uh, explores uh, Gilmore girls and uh that and more. His most recent book is called Moonlighting: An Oral History. And in this book, uh Scott Ryan is drawing from the recollections of just about every significant player, every significant participant uh in this groundbreaking show. Moonlighting actually is not seen very widely anymore. But once upon a time, it was uh, one of the most important of television phenomena and an incredibly influential show, groundbreaking in many respects. And uh, its influence uh, needs to be understood and celebrated. And this book is a terrific way to understand that history. The book is published by Fayetteville Mafia Press. And again, it's titled Moonlighting and Oral History. Scott Ryan, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Before we start talking about this book uh, in depth, I would love to hear a little bit about your own relationship with television and how it is that your career path uh, has kind of taken the the trajectory that it has uh, with you writing all of these uh, interesting books about television.
1: Well, I grew up in the 70s uh, where television was you know, almost a babysitter and it it just it always inspired me. I I remember being a little kid and there was an episode of Happy Days where Fonzie blew up in an explosion and it was to be continued and I must have been like 6 or 7 or something and that whole week I couldn't do nothing else. I remember getting in trouble at school and all kinds of things because I was so worried about Fonzie. And I remember my dad so succinctly after a couple of days just saying to me, he's the star of the show. He's not going to die. And <laughs> it, I don't know. I feel like that sort of set me at, to start looking behind television. And it's something that I've always been interested in. So I have a podcast about TV, and I try to interview people about it whenever I get the chance, and then I started writing about it.
0: Very good. And what is the name of your podcast?
1: It's called The Red Room Podcast. The
0: Red Room Podcast. Uh, from,
1: it's, it's from Twin Peaks. Uh, there's, there's a set called The Red Room in there, so that's a Twin
0: Peaks set. Ah, I never watched Twin Peaks, so that's why I didn't understand that uh, that reference. I did see the title mentioned someplace in your book. And that also is a good segue for me to confess something right now, which is I have never watched an episode of Moonlighting in my life. And uh, I say that only because I want to also say in the next breath, I loved your book. I mean, I devoured every page. Uh, and And so what I'm trying to say is this is a great book if you loved the show Moonlighting and want to revisit it but it's also a great book if you never watched Moonlighting and at the time and even now never understood kind of what all the fuss was about so I'm saying that uh, you've written a book that even for someone who never watched Moonlighting really found enjoyable Uh, was that at all a a part of your 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 hopes or purpose
1: yeah I mean I wrote the book for you even though we've never met I was like, (laughs) what would he want? And I thought, he would want me to do this on Moonlighting even though he's never seen it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I honestly, um, I would say halfway through the process of doing this book, I came upon one of the, I would say, the best ideas I've ever had in my life. And, hey, I've had some good ideas in my life, but this one might be the best. And I decided to set this book free from the actual plot of the series. Most books that are done like this are really tied to an episode guide or very much about the plots of the episodes. But the backstage drama of creating the show was honestly more interesting than the series, and the series is pretty interesting. So I actually let that go, and I wrote the book for people who – have never seen it, or they haven't seen it since 85, 89, and so they kind of remember the characters, but I i mean, it's nice to hear that feedback, because that's what I keep telling people who say, I've never seen it, and I'm like, no, the story's strong enough that it doesn't matter if you've seen it. it, it you know, it's about creating art.
0: Hmm. I want to talk for a moment about this book's format, and it's certainly not the first book that has been written in this particular way, but... Uh, some of our listeners perhaps have, have not ever read a book like this that is in this format known as a uh, an oral history. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of different authors who have put together uh, books in this format in which you have talked to a whole lot of different people and the book almost reads like a script. I mean, you see the name Sybil Shepard, colon, and then a paragraph or two of her talking about whatever the topic is at hand and then right beneath it the name of someone who was a director or producer on the show their name colon and then something that they have to say uh, and then uh, the chapters are are introduced with uh, passages f- from you very directly kind of setting the context and so on and sometimes in the midst of chapters we hear from you as well but Mostly, this is, in a sense, kind of the unadorned comments of various participants in the show, and it's a format that I absolutely love. I think it is easy for the reader to take this for granted that putting a a book like this together uh, might somehow be easier. It's just it's a (laughs) matter of assembling what other people have said versus you having to kind of generate things from scratch. And I know from talking to other people who have put these books together, that's not at all the case. Can you help our listeners understand, uh, or anybody who reads this book, kind of the challenge behind the scenes, that uh, the challenges for you in putting all of this together?
1: So this is my third book in this format, my 30-something book, my Letterman book and Moonlighting books have all been done in oral history. And I can tell you <laughs> I'm never doing it again unless a major uh, television show hires me to say we want a book like this. Um, it is so incredibly hard because the way I like to do it is I want to make the reader think that I got all 25 people together, we were in a room, and a conversation starts, and the whole book is the conversation. Well, obviously, that is not how it happened. I mean, these interviews took place over a year and a half, and, you know, as I do the interviews, I learn certain themes that everyone is touching on, so when I'm doing those interviews, I kind of know what this director said about this, so I might ask the lighting guy about that to get him to mention that, so I'm building this puzzle the entire time. And then in each of my books, there was one person that was willing to let me bother them all the time. So when I need a really good quote that takes me from here to there, in this book, that was Jay Daniel, who was the executive producer. And I could say to him, hey, this person mentioned this, you know, can you tell me about when Orson Welles was there? And and then I get that quote to, to get me back on. But it's like building the most complex puzzle that that you'd ever put together, and with no box top to match the picture to.
0: Hmm. Well, it works absolutely wonderfully. And uh, I uh, as I said, I uh, even as someone who... Uh, never watched the show and still has never watched the show. I found it absolutely fascinating. And, of course, that has a lot to do with uh, the incredible drama that uh, played out behind the scenes and sometimes in the scenes uh, through much of the course of this program. And, of course, you had to know uh, something about that going in. Did you understand actually how complex and rich a behind the scenes story this would be, or did that only become clear to you as you sat down and talked with all these people?
1: I had always suspected, but I didn't know because insanely this is the first book ever done about moon mining, which really is nuts to me because in the eighties there there were very few shows I mean, it was was like number three, number five, number seven, all the time. You know, it probably would have ranked higher had they made more episodes. But because there were so many reruns, you got to balance those ratings in to get that ranking. So this was a really, really big show. But because it was filled with such complex personalities, I don't think anyone really wanted to relive the experience. So most of these people had never given an interview before and when I would call them I hardly had to do anything to get them to talk it was like they had waited 30 years to get this off their chest and sometimes they were really struggling with these memories it was a a painful time for some of them Mm. but also a highly creative and rewarding time as well
0: right once in a while there will be a moment where somebody says something and then somebody else is reacting to the same topic and it and like you said it's as though they were sitting on opposite sides of a table each kind of giving their side of the story of of a given conflict or whatever uh and but i i don't know if that's just careful and poetic editing on your part or once in a while Did you say, for instance, to actress Sybil Shepard, well, so-and-so said that this happened, that you did this on the set, and then do you give her a chance for, in a sense, rebuttal or to offer clarification or an apology or whatever might be appropriate? I mean, were those kind of exchanges, were there those kind of exchanges with some of these guests?
1: So... Civil is a a different story than other people. So I'm going to answer that question twice since we have the time. (laughs) So the the way that I do this for the most part is I do not tell other people, the person I'm interviewing, what other people said. And the reason I don't do that is because if I tell them what they said, I'm coloring their memories. So a great example is with the – budget of the Shakespeare episode, for those who have watched Moonlighting, almost everyone remembers the Shakespeare episode. It's probably their most famous episode. They did a whole episode based around Taming the Shrew, and it is all written in iambic pentameter, and it's like a Shakespeare script. It was the most expensive episode of television up to that point. So I asked everyone, how much did that episode cost? But I didn't tell them what someone else said. And so in the book, when I get to that part, you have all these people telling how much it is. And the price ranges from like, you know, 150000 to $4 million or something. And to me, that's the fun part of an oral history. Because while I'm not getting the true price tag, what I'm getting is just how much it mattered to them at the time that this was an expensive episode. And... To me, that's the fun of the oral history. So if I would have said, this guy said it was $2 million, how much did it cost? Everyone would have said $2 million. Hmm. So I don't try to tip their memory with someone else's memory. Sybil Shepard was a little bit different. I did. She was my last interview. So at that point, my book's kind of put together, so I'm just trying to get Sybil in to my book. And, you know, she caused... issues for a lot of people and I felt that it was very important for her to have the chance to have a rebuttal to everything that she was accused of or not accused of. Um, Sometimes she would answer questions and sometimes she wouldn't but I asked her all the hard questions and sometimes you get her direct response to that.
0: Mm. For those of you just joining us I'm speaking with Scott Ryan author of Moonlighting and Oral History. And uh, this book uh, brings us behind the scenes of one of the most influential and important uh, programs in television history. Uh, it's uh, it, it aired back in the 1980s, and uh, it reshaped television forever, uh, for good or ill, most would say for good. And uh, we are talking... Uh, about this book and uh, and what it was like to put this all together. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the opening of the book in which you set the, set the scene really nicely by helping us understand, especially those of us who really never watched the show, why it was so important. At one, of, at one point you say, everything old became new again in describing the way in which this show was, on the one hand, utterly new, and yet drawing richly upon what had come before, if not necessarily from television. Explain a little bit more about what's behind those uh, intriguing words, everything old became new again, in this show called Moonlighting.
1: So Moonlighting is 100% from the brain of Glenn Gordon-Karren. He created the show, he wrote the pilot, and he basically, every episode went through his typewriter. Well, he wanted to be a movie director and a movie writer. He loved movies. He wasn't a television guy. So basically, when he created this pilot, what he created was a Howard Hawks script. And Howard Hawks did Bringing a Baby, a very, very famous old movie, and so throughout the chapters, all my chapter titles are based on romantic screwball comedies from the 40s and 50s. Just I play with the words a little bit to kind of get that out there. The other thing nighting is famous for is breaking the fourth wall, which is when a character talks directly to the audience. That wasn't happening on television. But Bob Hope and Bing Crosby used to do it all the time in the road movies from that era. So Glenn talks in the book a lot about how he gets his credit for this revolution. But honestly, he was taking it from the stuff he liked when he was a kid and watching those movies, they just brought it to television. That's probably where Moonlighting changed television the most Mm -hmm. is it really was that first show that kind of made TV snap out of its TV cookie-cutter way, and and became more of making feature films every week.
0: For the sake of those who uh, never watched the show, uh, let's briefly sort of set the scene, kind of the central premise of the show, and in particular, of course, uh, these two iconic characters of Maddie Hayes and David Addison, who were brought together uh, in... uh, as uh, with with Sybil Shepard and uh, and Bruce Willis. Uh, Describe the central scenario of Moonlighting.
1: So basically, Moonlighting is a detective series that is not a detective series and also knows it's a detective series. Um, (laughs) Every week there's a case, but that case is totally irrelevant. It's just there to reflect on the relationship between David and Maddie because, again, the show is basically a screwball romantic comedy, which means you have the main characters talking a lot, and then you'd have this silly chase scene like in an old Three Stooges thing. So you've got romance, you've got comedy, you've got mystery, all mixed into one thing. So it really isn't heart to heart, or Remington Steele, or Murder She Wrote, or Magnum PI, but it's pretending that it that it is that way. Which is why, as a kid, I was, you know, 15 to 20 when this was airing. I didn't care about a, i I'm not going to be interested in a detective series. You know, that's what my parents liked about it. But to me, it was that that silliness when they started running around chasing each other for no good reason. And, you know, you you cared so much about Dave and Maddie.
0: One of the things that I did not remember about Moonlighting is that uh, it initially went on the air as a mid-season replacement. And so its first season uh, consisted of of only six episodes. Uh, When it went on the air, was this going on the air in a sense beneath the radar with relatively modest expectations?
1: Definitely. I think that um, I I don't think they expected it to become what it became. And it was honestly over the summer in the reruns that they started to take notice that it was doing as well in the reruns as it was in the new episodes. And was building. So by the time it came around to season two, it started to really take off in that way. And, again, this show discovered Bruce Willis. And you just think of what a superstar he is now. And imagine that's just on TV every week. I mean, I can't really think of a comparison right now to to how that would be because movie stars are always on TV now. Uh, you know, he truly blew up in, in a huge way. Hmm.
0: Let's talk about uh, these two performers and characters for just a moment. Sybil Shepherd as Maddie Hayes and Bruce Willis as uh, David Addison. Uh, I like uh, a line that you give us about the character of Maddie Hayes uh, saying that she uh, was what the world in the midst of Ronald Reagan's America feared most. A Beautiful Woman with Remarkable Intelligence. Uh, Was that really a revolutionary concept when this show went on the air?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the other female characters on television in 1985, you're going to struggle to find the woman owning the business. She is the boss of David Addison. He works for her. She owns that business she is just as strong as the male character. This is not someone who takes the back seat to the male role. And I talked to all the writers about that. And for them, they said, again, they went back to those golden um, movies in the forties where you have a strong, you know, you have Katherine Hepburn going up against Spencer Tracy, you know, they're equals. And, and that just really wasn't happening in eighties television. I think that Maddie Hayes really should go down in history as an influential female television character. I don't think it really happens just because Civil Shepherd is such an icon that I think people don't consider it as much as they should, which is why I spend that first chapter just getting people talking about that character to kind of get that history out there, but also remind viewers and people like you who may not know, just setting up the characters in the first two chapters.
0: One of the things you say is she was the feminist character who came along at the right time. And that's probably an important thing to acknowledge as well. And it's one reason why certain good ideas end up not hitting pay dirt because they come along a little too early or a little too late. Uh, But in a sense, the world was ready, maybe even hungry, for a character like Maddie Hayes.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's totally true. I think it has so much to do with what else was going on. You know, you have it a little bit on Cheers as well, where you have Sam and Diane, and certainly Diane was smarter than Sam. But I don't know that you could say the, that the show balances those characters as equals. You know, certainly the Sam Malone character wins and, and is the hero of that show. Moonlighting, they, they did a lot of work to be sure that, you know, sometimes Bruce Willis is right, sometimes Sybil Shepherd is right, and you keep that balance. That's a balance that doesn't happen too often today either. I mean, it was just at that time, and I make a point in the book that I don't think they kept it up, the whole series, and when that starts to slip, the show doesn't work as well. Right.
0: We should be careful to say that the character of David Addison, that's Bruce Willis's character, uh, is also uh, very much out of the ordinary uh, in, in that day. In fact, you go so far as to say David Addison changed everything. That is... The character of David Addison changed everything. It was really uh, the the likes of which we've really not not, not seen before. What was so uncommon about uh, a character like David Addison?
1: Well, it had to do with how men were portrayed on series like that. Uh, Glenn Gordon Caron talked about how when he... Looked at men on television, they didn't look like the men he knew from New York and New Jersey, where the area where he grew up. David Addison pouts. Uh, leading men didn't pout. Uh, David Addison is really funny, and he knows he's funny. He's childish, but also he, he stands up for Maddie and Mr. Festa. So he, he's still protecting the people he loves, but he's also like a little kid in some ways. You know, that was not how men were portrayed on television at that time. They were these heroes. They were these, you know, huge figures. And this allowed that to come out in TV for the first time. I mean, there's episodes where you really don't like David because he makes poor decisions. and And that was new. television. And now, you know, it goes the other way. Now they only create characters that do things we don't like, and they forgot to balance it back the other way, where you have a a little bit of both.
0: One thing that I found intriguing was uh, when uh, it's either you or or one of uh, the people you interviewed said that the character of David Addison was a combination of Bruce Willis and a young, idealized Glenn gordon uh, the creator of the show. Can you expound on on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I believe that that was uh, Glenn's assistant that said that. One of the first questions that I asked of everyone that I interviewed, just to kind of get them in, in the spirit, is who is David Addison? And then that became that chapter. And it was amazing how many people said, well, it was Bruce Willis. That, but I think the fact that you could be that quick, I mean, the things he says are so funny and the dialogue was so fast, that was the person that Glenn Gordon Karen wished he was. You know, when you have the time to sit down and, and plan out your answers and your comments to people, uh, you, can, you can be really witty. And it just appeared that David Addison could do this in a moment. Um, that was why the show always got behind, because it took a long time to write all of that out and and plan it in that way. But I think that 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 was the key to it being Glenn and Bruce, because I think Bruce had that smarmy behavior and and that smile, and Glenn had the intelligence to make up those witty one-liners.
0: I I enjoyed one quote from Glenn Gordon-Karen in talking about the character of David Addison when he said something to the effect that David comes from my sense of rebellion in boredom. <laughs> kind of makes <laughs> yeah. you wonder how many things emerge from uh, our rebellion against boredom.
1: Well, yeah, and I think there's a lot of that in Moonlighting, um... And it sort of affected my television viewing. I want a show that that rebels against boredom. I can't stand when I see something that you've seen a million times. And Moonlighting did not do that. Every week to week, you never knew what you were going to get from the show. Hmm.
0: We're talking about uh, the brand new book, Moonlighting, an oral history, as uh, Scott Ryan, its author. So Glenn... Uh, Gordon Karen said, I wanted to do television as if it was a movie. Uh, and and you've already said uh, in this interview that that was really his highest aspiration. He wanted ultimately to uh, create, direct, produce movies. And, uh, and in some respects, this was a, a gateway to that higher aspiration uh, to do this little TV show called Moonlighting. But can you explain the ways in which uh, he did Moonlighting as though it were a movie and I suppose in effect kind of rewrote some of the rules about how one makes television.
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea behind a TV show is that you're going to tune into it every week and you already know what you're going to get. Um, You know, when you watch Seinfeld, you know he's going to tell his jokes, Kramer's going to bust through the door, whatever it is. That's what you're going to do. When you go see a movie, every movie is different, we hope. I mean, there's horror films, there's musicals, there's romantic comedies. Well, that's what Moonlighting did. So there was a the black and white episode where the whole thing is set in the 40s, and they actually filmed it in black and white. And they're not even playing their same characters in there. They did an eight-minute dance number to tell the backstory of David Addison. And they got Stanley Donan, who directed Singing in the Rain, to do it. So every week that you tuned in, you got something completely different. And, you know, that's just not what television is about. And so that is the movie aspect that he he wanted to do a, a fighting. He wanted to do a prize fight episode where so they had to plot out, you know, a whole boxing routine and that takes time. You can't do that in 7 days. Hmm. I
0: it is really incredible to read about some of these groundbreaking episodes that that really shattered the mold. The thing that is kind of amazing to me in addition to the fact that uh, you had this show that was so relentlessly creative, is also the fact that there was an audience for it. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that, uh, that the mass television audience of, of the mid-1980s would be ready for a show like Moonlighting. I mean, not only in terms of, of those two main characters that were so out of the ordinary, I mean, maybe that's not such a huge surprise, but the fact that the audience was willing to go wherever the restless imagination of Glenn Gordon Caron was going to take them, uh, I mean, I think a, a lot of television viewers actually do not want to be sort of perpetually surprised slash perplexed by a show. Uh, how do you think they manage to be so successful in, uh, even while being so incredibly innovative?
1: I absolutely love this question Um, because, man, there's there's two ways I want to go on this. I mean, on one hand, I think if you continue to give people nothing, they will accept it. But it doesn't mean that's what they want. And I think that Mm. network executives, are so afraid to do something different, but the moment someone does something different, then you get a million of those, and everyone copies that, and they think that they're doing something different. So I don't know that it's a surprise that it took off, because I think we actually do hunger for good art, and that's what this really was. Now on the flip side, you know that's giving America, the American public like all the crap. If you want to go the other way, I mean, in some ways, Bruce Willis was so attractive. Sybil Shepherd was just unbelievably beautiful. And I think that's what American TV people like. You know, I don't know that there was a bunch of people like me that decided to become a writer because the writing on the show was so great. I think they just loved Bruce Willis and Civil Shepard. And I don't know that they got into all of the creative things. I don't know. Mm. You'd have to take a poll of America. But I think in some <laughs> ways those are two answers that you can, you can get my pessimistic answer and my optimistic answer.
0: Right. But, you know,
1: if, if, if you we were given more entertaining television, we would love it, and we would love that more than watching a reality show. Right. Uh, but maybe people just like beautiful people.
0: Right. So there you go. Pick, well,
1: it, it, choose your own answer.
0: Right. I mean, so you know, somebody who just likes Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd might not even know what iambic pentameter is, and might not appreciate the fact that that takeoff of Taming of the Shrew was done in iambic pentameter. Uh, but that's okay in the same way that little kids who don't understand all the jokes on Rocky and Bullwinkle uh, still thoroughly enjoy it, but, you know, maybe enjoy it on kind of a different level.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think there was a ton of that. Um, you know, I this is a show I just so remember watching with my dad. And when the Bruce Willis character mostly broke the fourth wall, And when he would look into the camera and talk to us, I would light up. I loved it. And my dad, he didn't like that. He would get annoyed by that. He would say, now, why do they have to do that? Why why does it have to be silly? And he wanted it just to be a regular TV show. Um, So, I mean, I think there is a a balance in that at that time. I mean, now, I think if this was streaming on Netflix, I don't think anyone – would be taken aback by the changes, the talking to the audience, because I think a lot of that has come into television since then. Hmm. But it really was revolutionary back in 85.
0: I want to talk for a couple of minutes and a little bit about Sybil Shepard and Bruce Willis and the famous-slash-infamous tensions that were part of the making of this show. But uh, let's talk for a moment about the writers, who uh, helped make all of this go. And actually, the writers, by and large, seem to have been uh, a very functional group, (laughs) if the cast was sometimes a bit dysfunctional. And you quote one of the writers, Jeff Ramo, as saying, we were a band. (laughs) And by that, of course, he means like a really tight rock band where everybody's kind of riffing back and forth, and, and there's this fantastic sense of flow. And by and large, it sounds like they really hit the jackpot when it, when it came to the writers and how well they worked together and, in a sense, how much each of their respective contributions was valued. Can you just say a quick word about the writers behind Moonlighting and also some of the incredible challenges they faced?
1: Well, I, I love the writer so much. And part of it could be, as I said, this show really did influence me. And to get to talk to these people was incredible to me. Um, and, you know, Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno, you, you mentioned Jeff, they went on to write Meet Joe Black, uh, which is, you know, a very famous Brad Pitt movie. Uh, Deborah Frank, who wrote the Black and White episode, uh, is just. Uh, so nice of a person. Roger, director, he, he was, it was great to get to talk to him. chick Igley's another one. He, he's doing a show on Stars right now. I mean, all these people really continued to work, which was great. And, you know, they worked hours and hours a day. I mean, they were just writing nonstop because they were writing right up while they were filming. So they never caught up. You know, they even said the very first episode, there wasn't a full script when they started filming, and there never would be. I mean, they oftentimes wouldn't even have one for the season premiere, and they just couldn't, they couldn't ever catch up. So that pressure made them all become friends Mm -hmm. and bond together in a lifelong way, which was great for me to get to to talk to
0: all these people. Right. Speaking of pressure, uh, the creator of the show, Glenn gordon Karen, who, uh, especially for the first several seasons, had a very, very hands-on approach and did very little delegating. I mean, he had an enormous amount of responsibility for this show in addition to creating it. But I really found myself feeling some sympathy for him when he describes... Uh, how the very success of the show uh, was in itself a source of tremendous uh, and exhausting pressure. Uh, He said at some point, it it was exhilarating, but it was a high-wire act, and I was just so scared that I wouldn't be able to top myself. It's so interesting to think about success being a source of tremendous strain uh, and, and, and and fear, and that certainly was uh, the case with Glenn Gordon-Kerrin, and perhaps in part because he was such a newcomer to the medium of television.
1: Yeah, I mean, he admits that now he he's produced many TV series that, you know, he didn't know what he was doing, and sometimes when you don't know what you're doing, it's a lot easier to do it because you don't have anyone telling you you can't. But I think that the pressure was whenever they would do one of these episodes that were self contained and kind of a special episode, everyone loved it. I mean it invigorated everyone, But that's hard to do every week. I mean, you really wanted to do something different every week and that, how do you do that for five seasons? you know that that's too high of a task, and eventually that just wears away.
0: Mm. Well, I hope you appreciate the fact that it has taken me forty minutes to get to the matter of Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis <laughs> uh and their constant bickering and, and, and mounting tensions that that ultimately generated just about as many headlines as the television show itself did. And certainly that is a very important part of the moonlighting story. By no means the whole story, but uh you you share I would say generously ab- about this aspect of it. Um, what do you think is as af- after talking with everybody? <laughs> what would you? How would you boil down uh, the the tensions between these two actors and uh, and how much that made all of this even more difficult?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the decisions that I'd made early on was that I wasn't going to get into personality. So there is no stories that are, I don't like this person or there's a personality issue. If it affected the work, then that's, that is what this book is about. But as you say, that, that relationship was so hot that it it did affect the work. Um, You know, I get asked all the time, did Bruce and Sybil hate each other? I don't think they did, and I don't think they do. Sybil never said one bad thing about Bruce Willis in any interview that I had with her, and we talked many times. I think the thing is, the pressure was on them. They have this dialogue that's going back and forth with a bunch of words, and they're getting those scripts 15 minutes before they have to shoot it. So you don't have time to study your lines or figure out how you're going to do it. You just have to jump in and have an argument with someone. And I think that pressure and being there for all those hours a day—it just, you know, they fought. <laughs> they fought all the time. There, there was. And it, it's, you know, I actually used this analogy on another show, and I like it, so I'm going to use it again. I used to run the drive-through at Arby's. <laughs> and, you know, when, when the drive-thru backs up and you see those cars around the building, you don't say to the person, oh, can I please have a curly fry? This person's waiting. You say, hey, curly fries, I need one now. And if you're friends with that person, they know, hey, you're in a rush. you you got to get that drive-thru going. And it was just an amazing five-year-long drive-thru. So how about that for an analogy?
0: <laughs> I actually like that quite a lot. It's interesting to me when Sybil Shepherd is in effect confronted with some of the stories of, of what went on and, and I think you're right. People are not making character judgments, but the fact but there are certain facts that really are probably beyond dispute. I mean, that uh this happened and then she said this and then she went into her trailer and she didn't come back for this many minutes or whatever, and 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 right. for whatever reason, and maybe in her mind some of that was justified and and so on. But but again and again, she seems a bit taken aback and and does not remember any of this, and 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 one has a sense that uh, she perhaps at the time and maybe to this very day does not understand how her actions affected this whole universe of other participants in the show. I mean, how things ground to a halt or whatever it might be, or feelings hurt. Uh, I mean, I, I, I find that to be understandable. I don't come away from this book hating Sybil Shepherd, but I also feel like uh, she is an example uh, and far from unique in Hollywood of someone uh, very much concerned with themselves and their own work and not necessarily understanding how their actions are affecting the whole constellation that surrounds them. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: I, I, I do think that's fair to say. And, and you know, I had to bring up some hard things with Sybil, and she was very adept at not answering those questions. But I felt it, you know, I didn't want anyone to read this book and think that this guy was an Indian. He had Sybil Shepherd. Why didn't he ask her about uh, the salad that that they stepped in, which to me is a, a crazy story, that's in the book. Well, I did ask her, and she would she would get close. She must have made the decision that there were things she was going to talk about with me, and things that were not. And I respect that. You know, she doesn't have to share, and maybe she doesn't remember. I don't really know, but but I did confront her with. Everything that I knew was truthful that was corroborated by more than one person. Mm. And, you know, going back to your first question about oral history, that's why an oral history is such a better way. Because I just put it out there what these people say. Had I commented on it, then the reader could have been slanted to being on Sybil's side or they could be on Bruce's side or Glenn's side or whoever's side. But it's just out there, and you, as the reader, you have to determine what you think happened, where your loyalties lie. I really don't get involved in any of that. Hmm. There's a lot of times people said things that I thought, oh, would I love to, <laughs> you know, oh, you could, you could point out, like, do you see, do you see right here? But I don't do that. I really respect my reader, and I say, have this journey. You know, what do you think?
0: It's ultimately the story of what uh, one person describes as structured chaos, (laughs) the making of an amazing, groundbreaking uh, television series. And uh, I think you've done a a superb job of telling this story uh, in a thorough and enlightening and entertaining way. The book, again, is titled Moonlighting and Oral History, published by Fayetteville Mafia Press and uh, the author, Scott Ryan. Scott Ryan, thank you so much for giving the world this this wonderful book. It makes me want to uh, seek out the, f- the series Moonlighting and watch it finally, although I understand it is quite elusive to watch these days. Is that right?
1: It is. Uh, some fans have uploaded episodes on YouTube. Um, Glenn's working on getting it out there, which would be great. I mean, I will say he has told me he is is in negotiations with disney but disney's gonna have to pony up the money for all those songs so you know they could make another marvel movie or release moonlighting i don't know well, see.
0: <laughs> well fingers crossed in the meantime thank you again for this wonderful book moonlighting and oral history i enjoyed speaking with you about it best wishes
1: yeah and thanks for actually reading a book that's pretty rare in these interviews so i i honestly appreciate it you're welcome